Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, and welcome to Rational Security, the Snowverit edition. I'm Shane Harris of the Daily Beast. Over the snow. Done. Over it. I'm, I've climbed over it. I've fallen over it. I'm over it. I was over it before I even saw it, because I was out in California. Yeah, well, you don't get to be over the snow, yo. I am so over <laughs> two days' worth of digging out the car while you were in California. How many gutters did fall off your house, by the way? So far, none. Knock on oh, wood. God. Knock, knock. <laughs> yeah, you were in California when this, like, apocalyptic, you know... That was not an day accident. Day after tomorrow thing moved that was not. That was not an accident, you know. I was supposed to go on Sunday. Yeah. Word of the snow arrived. I moved my ticket forward to miss the you snow. You left your family I here. left my family. Tammy came back from Israel at 7.30 in the morning. By 10.30, I was gone. We oh sort of waved God. on the porch on oh the way. Yep. On the her way in, this my way out. This is getting payback against you for all of your global gallivanting. <laughs> <laughs> like, Undoubtedly. And I am not bitter because my two teenagers did most of the shoveling, to be perfectly honest. Oh, that's honest. good. Put them to work. That's what teenagers are for. I've decided this is why we have children. The, fam- the family was shoveling snow, and I was shoveling the shit out in California <laughs> <laughs> at a conference. Ben, you just introduced hey, you, profanity you, you, to our podcast. God damn <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you got to eat somehow, right? Yeah. Exactly. Um, those two need no introductions, but my good friends, Tamara Kaufman Wittes and Ben Wittes. Hello, guys. Hello, hey. Shane. Uh, so we're mostly dug out of the snow in Washington, but yeah, it was a record storm, uh, and uh, I'm glad we could all be here today to record this. We- the government's finally getting open again and back on track. Yep. Um- and one day schools will open again, too. Are they still closed? Uh, Fairfax is still closed, yes. Yeah. It's crazy. All right. Well, we got we got hot topics to melt the snow here. Uh, this week on the podcast, the Arab Spring, five years later. What have we learned about the future of peace and stability in the region? Who is the mysterious fourth American hostage freed by Iran and the next wave of surveillance reform? It is coming for you. Plus, object lessons later in the show. Um, tomorrow, why don't we start with you? Uh, your, your wordplay is sitting right in front of us. My wordplay is this lovely, slim little volume uh, by Hafez Ghanem. It's a book called The Arab Spring, Five Years Later, Toward Greater Inclusiveness. And it's actually volume one, um, Hafez's volume, of a two-volume set. The second volume is a set of essays uh, on specific countries in the Arab world, um, including Iraq and Egypt. But This little volume is just a fantastic um, piece of work because it does two really important things. Number one, you know, we think about these Arab uprisings, um, which started just a little bit over five years ago. Uh, In fact, it was five years and two weeks ago that Ben Ali fled Tunisia, Mm. five years and three days ago that the Egyptian revolution began. Um, And, you know, we think of these as political events. 
But we all know that economic grievances often drive revolutions. And what Hafez does in this book is he does kind of the economic forensics behind the grievances that drove the revolutions. And he shows, using facts and figures and comparing the Arab world to other countries, um, just where these gaps came from between citizens' ex expectations and the realities that they face. So just to give you one example, 30 years ago, Egypt and Malaysia uh, were on a par economically. And Malaysia surged ahead and Egypt stagnated in terms of growth, in terms of growth per capita, even on sort of human development stuff like um, the effective quality of education. And so you could see these gaps opening up. He also does a really nice job of isolating using economic data who was excluded in these Arab states before the revolutions and how. And, uh, and we've talked a lot, I think, in the five years since the uprisings about youth the, the youth bulge in the Arab world, unemployment among young people. But one of the populations that Hafez's data pulls out um, that I think we haven't talked about are farmers, um, people living in rural areas. And particularly, most of the farmers in the Arab world uh, farm really small plots of land. It's not subsistence farming, but they, they're not farming at an industrial scale. And before the revolutions, um, these were people who didn't have clear title to land. They didn't have good access to water. The national infrastructure didn't let them bring their goods to market. And so even when cities were growing and industries were growing, the, the agricultural population was falling farther and farther behind. And what's really useful about the book is not only does he lay out all of this economic background so we understood what drove the uprisings, but it also pinpoints really well what some of the key um, drivers of stabilization will be in this region. In other words, if these governments can't get the agricultural sector working more effectively for people, they're in trouble. Um, and this is the kind of thing that I think we don't hear enough about in the coverage of what's going on in the Arab world today. Yeah, like, I hear you. Oh, sorry, go ahead. So I have a question for you. I remember reading in the years before the Arab Spring a book, which I actually read in draft, um, uh, that came about as close to any book or article that I remember to predicting the Arab Spring. And it was by uh, you. Um, <laughs> oh, yeah, that book. I um, happen to have that book right here, yeah, Ben. What is so, so one of the arguments that the author of that book made um, was that there were certain eco economic drivers that made uh, the uh, status quo in the Arab world unsustainable. And um, my question is, to what extent are the uh, drivers that you identified prospectively consistent with the drivers that this book rep uh, identifies retrospectively in, in the economic sphere? Well, that's a great question. I think one of the reasons... Let the record reflect before you answer it that you did not... Uh, what I, that I don't know what the answer to this is because we have not discussed this. Let and, the record and, reflect and that. And whether, whether the answer is that you are very prescient or the answer is that these are ships passing in the night, uh, this was not pre-planned between us and you did not set up this question. You're supposed to set your wife up to make her look really smart. Well, I, maybe I did. But if I, I did, did, I didn't do it on purpose. You're hear about uh, it? It, it was not a setup, but, um, but actually I think one of the reasons I so appreciate Hafez's work here 
um, in doing the forensics, as I said, is that he's demonstrating with really good cross-regional comparative data stuff that I identified anecdotally mm -hmm. in my book, which was published in 2008. So, for example, I have a line in, in, uh, in my book, Freedom's Unsteady March, in which I talk about, you know, imagine a young Egyptian who's grown up in a school system that taught him that his nation, along with India and Indonesia, founded the non-aligned movement and was a leader in the third world. And yet, you know, that young Egyptian can see that young Indians and young Indonesians have opportunities that he doesn't have access to. Um, that was something that I heard all the time traveling around the region, talking to young people in the Arab world. But Hafez has the data. Mm -hmm. And the data is totally consistent with those anecdotes. Um, so that, to me, is really powerful. But then he also reveals things that I didn't see at all, like what was going on in in rural parts of the Arab world, in rural Tunisia, in rural Egypt. And the role, it's very interesting, the role that property rights play in the poverty and um, disparities between rural development and what was going on in the cities. We think of revolutions as kind of urban middle class phenomena, but the discontent in these poor rural populations, I think, you know, suggests that there could be another wave of unrest coming if these problems aren't addressed. That's a really interesting uh, point. You know, a couple of years ago, a few years ago, I was asked uh, by a law professor and sort of a law and economics guy, uh, professor in, in California named, named Bob Cooter uh, to uh, help him uh, with a manus book manuscript that he was finishing up, which is called Solomon's Knot, uh, which is about uh, drivers of poverty and how to end poverty in developing countries. And it's very, very fixated on questions of property rights as uh, critical to get right if you have any chance of ending poverty in some of these countries. So that's actually a very interesting thing to hear. This also makes me think that just the political class in this country has just kind of gotten it wrong in assessing what the causes Jobs, jobs, jobs. Or well, it is jobs, 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 right? I mean, it's so strange that we seem to not be maybe having seen that. But there's no, it's this... all about ancient tribal hatred. Sunni, <laughs> Sunni and Shia have been at it, Shane, for, for thousands, thousands of years. Now See, everybody got... knows that. You guys are just provoking me. We now. all agree You're on that. You're trolling me. It was in, it, I think Obama was trolling you in the State of the Union address. Yes, he was. But I think in this country we, we think of the Arab Spring as being this you know, people yearning to be free, this kind of instinctive movement towards democracy that we somehow recognizes, oh, that's just like what we wanted, and we're all yearning for the same things, but it sounds like there are much more, I mean, local economic factors driving this, that, you know, that, that is much more um, about these specific places and hard numbers than it is about some sort of, I mean, maybe there is sort of a yearning for democracy as well mixed up in this, but it sounds like this is much more rooted in people's day-to-day -day lives and the disparities that they see rather than their aspirations. Well, I actually think that aspirations are uh, what what drove um, at least a lot of young people in the Arab Spring. But I think that those aspirations aren't expressed in terms of ideals yeah. or philosophies. They are expressed in terms of the day-to-day. -day. My ability to decide that I want to be an entrepreneur, I want to be an architect instead of you know, getting a government job because that's what's available, but I have to wait eight years to get it, and so in the meantime, I'm forced to drive a taxi cab. Right. You know, that's 
an economic problem, but it's also a political problem because it's about my individual agency or perceptions of corruption. You know, these are states that when they did start to liberalize their economies, sold off state enterprises to rich people with access who then threw people out of work. That's an economic problem, but it's also a political problem because those people who were working in the factories didn't have any access to the political system to make that liberalization fair. So, I, I mean, for me, I don't know that you can really separate between economics and politics in the Arab uprising. So what's his prescription for then, or does he have one about how we bring peace and stability to that region long term? Yeah, so he's actually got four, four priorities. One is um, governance reform, that, you know, that the, actually, the actual state institutions um, are really ineffective in the states that are surviving in the Arab world, and they need greater accountability. Again, politics, right, but also service delivery. Um, number two, a focus on expanding small businesses and small and medium enterprises. Number three, uh, paying attention to those rural areas and, uh, and increasing the ability of small family farmers to make a decent living. And number four, working on the mismatch, which has been noted for a long time, between the education system in the Arab world and the jobs that are available in the labor market. So instead of you know, granting degrees as Saudi Arabia does by the hundreds in Islamic studies, you know, graduate people in engineering and um, biotech and things like that where they can actually get jobs. Um, OK, so we'll move on. That sounds like an important book, by the way, so everyone go check it out. Um, I'm going to log roll myself in my wordplay. You log roll away, this man. this story is just roll like my, this those is, logs. This is my favorite story in so long, you guys. Okay, so two weeks ago, four Americans are released from Iran in a prisoner swap. And we recognize three of the names. Jason Rezaian, of course, Washington Post reporter. Amir Hakmadi, the US, former U.S. Marine. Uh, Saeed Abedini, who is a Christian pastor. And there's a name that on was, here. That was Ted Cruz's favorite hostage, by the way. What was his favorite one? Yeah, yeah. He was really excited about the release of the pastor. Well, that's good. Yeah. I think Amir Hakmati is my favorite hostage. We're just picking. I don't know. I'll pick him. I'm on his team. I don't know. Um, but then there's this fourth name, Nosratala Khosravi Rutsari. And everybody who's followed this story goes, who? Who is that? And immediately start. At first, we thought it was there was actually this was, the wrong name was printed. It was uh, uh, Namazi, who's over there, still was listed as one of the people coming back. We thought that makes sense. He's just been captured. But no, it's this person, Rutsari. Everyone starts Googling for it. There's nothing, nothing, no thing. This person doesn't exist, doesn't have a social media page, doesn't show up in public record searches, nothing. Um, so, yeah, right. It's so creepy. Ghost like. It's like the X-Files uh, uh, reboot. Um, so it turns out that Nostratola Khosravi Rutsari, if that is in fact his real name, um, was picked up by Iranian authorities uh, about probably 10 or 11 months ago. And the U.S. government did not know uh, wow. that he was in custody until the Iranians notified us um, through the Swiss that they had this person and would we potentially like him back. And at the time, we were five months into negotiations for the other three people who we have heard of. Uh, and this guy sort of gets tagged on. And I wrote about this this week in the Daily Beast. And it is just the most improbable, bizarre story. This guy goes over to Iran. He has family there. At some point, it's still not exactly clear how he does this, but lets it be known that he is working for the FBI and is in Iran to try and track down Robert Levinson the former FBI agent and ex-CIA contractor 
who went missing in Iran in 2007 and has been the subject of very intense searches, negotiations, back and forth between the Iranians. His family is extremely upset that we have not found him. And this guy apparently gets picked up. And the Iranians... Because invest- shockingly enough, someone he talks to yeah. reports this. Amazingly. Um, there was one public report in Iran Wire, which is a, a, a um, publication uh, run by uh, journalists who are not in the country, uh, but do some really good work, saying that he may have been sending text messages to an FBI agent who he knew, claiming that he knew the whereabouts of Robert Levinson, and perhaps these messages were intercepted by Iranian security. Who knows? Somehow they find this out. What's weirder still is that the FBI actually did know who this person was. But it's because before he went to Iran, he called the FBI when he was still in the United States. He is a um, carpet and rug designer and salesman. You can't make that detail (laughs) up. Of course he is. He calls the FBI and says, I have information on Robert Levinson. So they come to interview him and think he's a total space cadet. Like, he doesn't have any information whatsoever. So this guy has a fantasy that he's working for the FBI. And an FBI FBI. agent's card, which he takes. Oh, man. And then he goes off to Iran and pretends to be working for the FBI. Correct. And ends up arrested. Yes. And the United States then has to sacrifice we don't know how many chits in order to get him out of jail. Well, that's a good question is what what, what maybe the Iranians wanted back on the table. But it appears that the Iranians investigated this, too, and thought this guy was also nuts. His arrest was never put in the press. There were never any statements issued. Completely different from how they treated the other three. And one has to sort of presume that maybe it's because they looked at this guy and thought, this ain't for real. This ain't for real at all. Wow. Uh, very, so maybe they didn't case. ask for any chits in return. Maybe he was a know. gimme. Yeah, I don't know. So it's interesting, though, that they didn't just send him home, that they folded him into these they negotiations in. rather than just kind of put him on a plane right. and Right, which him makes you think that probably, to your point tomorrow, that they did ask for something more. Mm-hmm. And they'd asked for as many as 19 Iranians and Iranian-Americans who were in the United States, and they only got seven. And they got Interpol warrants canceled against another 11, I think. Um, and let's note that all seven stayed in the United States, right? Or I six th- of the seven. I think most of them stayed. And there was a yeah. fascinating story of one uh, in the New York Times by Rick Gladstone this week uh, who um, almost didn't take the deal because he was, he'd had a career in aerospace engineering and was convinced that he was going to win on appeal and that he wasn't guilty of these sanctions violations uh, and ultimately took it at the end. Uh, but is essentially probably never be able to work in his chosen career again, had to agree not to profit from the sale of his story, so he can't write a book about it. But the government did drop a $10 million claim against him. Wow. So there was a lot of behind-the-scenes deal-making going on around this. And what I found just really interesting about this Kosravi guy's case is, you know, the administration made no effort at the time of his release to put out any information about him and who he was, you know, citing things like Privacy Act restrictions and, and whatever. Although they did manage to get President Obama to mention his name and pronounce it reasonably well they in his did. press conference. They did. And it was just, I just find this to be an, an utterly strange story that goes to, it's, I put it in the bucket of just more, it's something out of a spy novel, and the fact that it's crossed with Iran and the nuclear negotiations. I mean, it's just it's well, it's something out of a spy bizarre. novel, except that there's no there there, right? right? I what mean, what was this guy doing? What was this guy doing? Has anyone interviewed his family, either in Iran or in They're the United in Iran, States? Yeah. Like, is he is he forbidden from talking to the press? No, it's just that he hasn't. So, Iran Wire did say they interviewed some family members of his, who said that they that they corroborated essentially this story. 
uh, that he was claiming to have these FBI ties. Now, in the Iran Wire story, and this I can't substantiate this, but he sends a text message, he gets picked up by the Iranians, and then he says, no, no, I was just kidding, I was drunk. Well, things Which you're is, not supposed to say in Iran. You're right. also not supposed to say in Iran. So he goes through, he's, he's processed, although I guess there's no trial, and he's sentenced to get uh, um, uh, several lashes. And that sentence is never carried out, and then he's, you know, eventually reunited with the Americans. Um, you know, I heard other stories about what he was doing over there, too, that I can't corroborate, so I don't want to go into them. But suffice to say that he was communicating openly in a way that the Iranians could understand that he claimed to be working for the Bureau. And I just, I mean, maybe this person is mentally ill, uh, uh, but boy, oh boy, like, if you ever wondered if you could go to Iran and start talking about Robert Levinson and the FBI and not get picked up. Now you know. Now you know. We also know he's no longer in Iran. Where he is now is not entirely clear. Wow. Um, nor is it clear why he got onto the Levinson thing in the beginning. And, and you know, in, 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 in all seriousness, I mean, you know, Bob Levinson's family have been desperately looking for him for nine years. And when people like this come forward and have these wild claims. Oh, it's got to be such whiplash Yeah, for them. totally. And so it creates awful. false sense of hope. But his sister-in-law, Levinson's sister-in-law, told me, we, we have no idea who this guy is. We've never heard of him. But, uh, you know, I think it's... It starts to help explain some of the mystery as to why the Obama administration maybe was reluctant to give any more details <coughs> on this guy because um, it's ultimately just like a really strange and pretty sad story, actually. Um, but, you know... It'll be interesting to see what he does now. If he shows up. He'll open a carpet design studio in Burbank. Yes. I'm going to go scour them and find Are you Are you Nosratola Kostravi? There you go. I did look for him. Couldn't find him. That's my next. That's my next challenge. Wow! If you're listening, call me. Yeah, T we'll, tweet we'll, at Shane. He'll answer. We'll it. <laughs> find out he's a rational security listener. Yeah, that would be the greatest thing right, in a long time. <laughs> Ever. Yeah. Ever. Uh, okay, Ben. Um, the next wave of surveillance reform. You are writing it. You are serving. Well, I'm not, I'm not writing it. So I, I spent my wordplay this week is uh, six papers. Six. Count them six. That have not yet been published but that I spent the last week, in the last several days, in California uh, with the authors. This is a project. Slaving, working so hard. You know, you, you probably don't remember this, but over the next two years, Congress is going to have to revisit uh, FISA 702, mm -hmm. uh, the part of the uh, surveillance architecture known uh, colloquially as the PRISM program. And uh, a lot of people have suggested that it should consider as well uh, surveillance under Executive Order 12333 as part of that process. That is the sort of wild west of surveillance, the stuff that takes place overseas directed at non-U.S. persons and that doesn't involve companies domestically. You mean the order that's been around for like 38 years that were? Yeah. yeah that um, it gets amended every now and then. But it's... Uh, so we thought uh, Jack Goldsmith and I are uh, helping the Hoover Institution run this project and we thought it would be interesting to get f five or six people to write framing papers for the debate about this next wave of surveillance reform, what, what are the kind of reasonable parameters of the debate? Should Congress kind of just reauthorize the existing law? Should it get in 
and tinker with that law in substantial respects? Should it uh, try to fold a lot of activity that's not covered by that statute uh, within the law, uh, kind of expand its sweep? Or should it uh, try to curtail the law in meaningful respects and make it much, much more restrictive than it is? So we got uh, six people, or it's actually seven people, but six papers, um, ranging from the former deputy director of NSA to um, you know, a scholar at the Cato Institute, Julian Sanchez, to uh, sort of write framing papers about you know, kind of what should, what should the next wave of surveillance reform look like. And we, we tried to get them all in the same room, but because of the snow, a bunch of people got stuck in Washington and had to join by, uh, by video conference. Uh, and we critiqued one another's papers. I, um, and we are moving them now toward, uh, toward publication um, which will happen over the next couple months. And so I'm hoping that this will be a, a sort of substantial uh, you know, way to launch this next wave debate uh, so that it'll be, it'll be driven less by you know, Edward Snowden dropping new documents into the public record and, and sort of the kind of spasmodic news coverage that happens when that sort of thing happens, and more by uh, a, a diverse range of kind of considered thought about the uh, sort of significant issues that we face in that regard. So we have uh, some of the papers are very, very nearly done, and some of them are still a little bit of a ways off. Um, but we're hoping over the next few months to, to drop a, a range of, of ideas into the public discussion uh, well, don't be a tease. What are yeah, so, it, I mean, for two questions. Number one, what, are, what anchored the two ends of the spectrum in this debate? What, what positions um, are at the extremes? And number two, did you come away from this workshop with different views yourself, having heard these Okay, three, arguments? were there any points of consensus? Um, so, consensus? Ha! <laughs> Who needs it? So the discussions were off the record, so I'm not going to talk about what people said. But I will talk about my impressions. So the range of opinion is, is really broad. I mean, there are papers here that argue uh, essentially for the status quo. Um, there are papers that argue that the status quo is pervasively unconstitutional and based on deep constitutional error and that the right thing to do is to lop off a large swath of 702 that is all Tear it all down all of Just 702 all that implicates US person communications and um, and there are papers that argue that 702 is is a fine model so fine that we should incorporate a lot of what's now under executive order 12333 into what's now 702. And so the range of opinion is, is really, really big. Plus, one of the papers uh, argues without, you know, a sort of cautiously that technology is, is rendering almost all of the premises deeply suspect um, and that over the next few years, we're going to have to rethink this stuff from the ground up. And so there's a, a lot of range of opinion, a lot of instability. 
I came away with, I think, a very conservative reaction, which was that there are many, many more ways for Congress to mess this up than to improve it, and that there may be a uh, good Pandora's box argument for just a pretty clean reauthorization on grounds that while the current status quo is not optimal and you could improve it, it's much more likely that you would make it worse if you open up the statute and therefore don't try, just reauthorize and leave well enough alone. Mm -hmm. I don't know what kind of a constituency that argument is going to have and I don't know if I even believe it, but that's kind of was my reaction coming away, which is, wow, this is just a real can of worms. Maybe we should just leave it alone. Was was there also, I mean, my, I think we've talked about this in the show before, but my sense of 702 reform has always been that while, you know, NSA was willing to go along with reforms in the 215 program and metadata and suspend the collection of phone records and keep it with the phone companies and that kind of thing, that that was actually, from their standpoint, a pretty good outcome considering what could have happened that would have been more extreme, but that if you talked about pulling the 702 program down or significantly restraining it, that you know NSA and the intelligence community would fight tooth and nail to keep it because it is such a productive program, so much more so, and viewed as so much more important than the 215 program or programs. Did you come away with that feeling too that 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 is a sort of a, a that the intelligence community would go to the barricades to keep this? Or did you feel that people were much more open to reforming it than you thought? Well, so I, I think as a, I, I think everything you say is right, that this is one of the crown jewels and it is a very big deal in terms of the aggregate productivity of the signals intelligence of the United States, which is in turn uh, a substantial percentage of the intelligence output of the United States. The 702 constitutes a significant, it's the single largest contributor to the president's daily brief. Mm -hmm. um, and it's extremely productive. And so in that sense, I think from a lot of people in the IC's point of view, it's not negotiable. On the other hand, here's the problem. Um, there's a left wing of the Democratic Party and a right wing of the Republican Party that has, you know, a pitchforks and torches attitude towards surveillance. And it's not at all clear that these are not, when you put them together, the majority in the House. And the coalition that got together for, uh, for the USA Freedom Act was uh, very precarious. It, it had to lapse before it could come together. Right. And so it's not clear that you have the votes to reauthorize 702 without opening it up in some respect. And it certainly isn't clear that you have the votes to do it confidently without going to the last minute and having the authorities potentially lapse. And so I think if you're, if you're a play-it-safe person in the IC, it isn't entirely clear what safe is. And it's not clear that, what is clear is that we're not in 2004, 2005 anymore, where you can slam your fists on the table and say, we need this national security, Al-Qaeda, 9-11, right. and it's done. Um, and so I, I think for a lot of people, 
clean, permanent reauthorization would be the dream, but I think the legislative prospects for that or anything else is very murky at this stage. Fascinating. So, Shane, do you, do you buy the idea or does it seem plausible to you on its face that technological change could render some of this stuff just much less relevant? What do you mean? I'm not sure I understand the question. Ben, ben was saying that one of the papers was arguing that technological change means that these surveillance tools are just not valuable in the same way. Oh, I see. Like the tools are being rendered obsolete yeah. by the change of technology. Well, so let me, let me let me give you an example of this that's that's you know I think live. So a huge amount of our uh, surveillance architecture legally is based on the location of the person, right? If you have to, in order to spy on somebody without a warrant, you need to know that they're not a U.S. person and you need to know that they're not in the United States. Well, with virtual private networks, it is really easy to disguise your location. Right, so they could be anywhere. And so the question is, what if that, like encryption, becomes a relative default norm? Uh, how do you know what law to apply? Right, right. right. Um, and, would you, and would you default to, then don't surveil, because we can't determine... Or would you default to, you can always surveil because you can't right. determine. Or would you, or, or would you default to taking many, many more things before the FISA court with, to get a specific individualized warrant, which would be a sea change in the way we do overseas surveillance. And there are a lot of questions like that. I, mean, I just wrote a paper for, there's a conference coming up on the um, 100th anniversary of Brandeis's uh, nomination to the court. And going back and looking even at, you know, at the, sort of this seminal essay on the tension between, you know, privacy and security and sort of the seminal Supreme Court decision, there was this sense even then that the technology is evolving faster than the law can keep up with it. But what you're raising is also an interesting kind of related point, which is that what if the technology is such that the laws as constructed just simply cannot be applied at all or leave us with no understanding of how to apply them? If, if everybody, if nobody can be identified in terms of geographically where they are or which uh, um, nationality they are, whether they're a U.S. citizen, then the whole framework for right. our surveillance laws just falls completely apart. falls apart. Yeah, and that that might be actually. So it's not even so much that technology is like staying a couple of steps ahead of the law, but that it just sort of evolves in a way that the law can't even capture anymore. Right, that which would make likely. the libertarians really happy. Yeah, I mean, I suppose it would, and, well, and, it, and, and it would be the national security types would look at it and say this is like the worst thing that could have ever happened. Well, it, no, but it depends which way the law responds to that. So if the law responds by saying actually we're going to de-emphasize location, right. and make you know, then the libertarians would be really unhappy. Right. If if the law responds by saying okay, you have to assume somebody's in the United States unless you know it to be otherwise. That'll make the libertarians very happy and and the national security establishment very unhappy. There may be ways to thread that needle, um, but it's a um, it's a very it's a very tricky business. Yeah, I think your point about the legislative coalition on this is really interesting too, Ben. First, because you do have this continued kind of tacit alliance or at least alignment of interest between the far left and the far right, which is just fascinating on its own terms, but. 
It's also interesting because whomever is leading the House, well, first of all, we don't know what those coalitions are going to look like <laughs> um, in another two years or four years. Right. Um, but whoever's leading the House then has to make a, a judgment call about how to proceed on this. Um, and what you're suggesting might be the safest course, which is to just go for a straight reauthorization, which clearly, I'm, I'm guessing, faced with that situation, that's what the IC would like. Um, it may be something that the leadership of the House can only do after they've tried everything else. I just want to say this makes me say, makes me think something I've said many times over the years. John Poindexter was right. Because, Ooh, you know, I look, alarms, I mean, alarms. yeah, I mean, a subject of my first book and, you know, his whole vision was like, look, you got to all the data is coming together anyway, essentially. So you should stop worrying about acquisition and start worrying about how the data is controlled once it's been acquired. Shane's long-term bromance with John Poindexter. Oh, unabashed, too. <laughs> wow. Totally. totally. I'm not, I mean, look, I'm not saying that we, we agree see eye on everything, but, like, on many of these things in predicting where the technology was going and where you would have to use technology and not necessarily just the law to find solutions for how to work with it, I think he was right. If you're heading towards a situation where the government wants to start essentially broadening collection because, well, we can't know for sure that you're not in the United States, then you're going to have to come up with technological solutions for auditing that information, having very strict accountability, having very tight rules on how it's used, and compliance with regulations. And, you know, it's kind of what he was after. John Poindexter, if you're listening to the Rational Security Podcast... Tweet it, Shane. It would make him so happy. So happy. Do you think John Poindexter is on Twitter? Uh, he's not on Twitter. No. No. No, 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 no. But he does like emoticons. Uh-huh. Yeah. I wonder if he likes he spells, podcasts. He spells them out, actually. My, my <laughs> what? My, spells out smile instead of the colon parentheses. My favorite, That's really cute. My favorite fun. single line in Shane's book, first book, is John Poindexter's comment that there was not a single one of his peers on the jury that convicted him. <laughs> I thought that was... <laughs> oh, my God. I thought, now there is a man with a healthy sense of himself. I've gotten an emoticon for that. Uh, yeah, it's All right. true. All right, let's move on to object lessons. Uh, ben, I, I, I can't... What are you I, holding there? So I, I can't am, wait anymore. You I, have to go first. I am taking a break this week from uh, sponsorship by Putin memorabilia. <laughs> and, Thank you. And I, I wasn't going to. I have some great stuff lined up in that, in that department. But just as I was, uh, just before Shane showed up for taping, uh, Cody Poplin walked into my office and presented me with a brand new copy of the Little Red Book, Quotations from Chairman Trump, which is now oh, available book that we've all been waiting on Amazon.com. And we went through it looking for rational security relevant stuff. So we leave out the section on Megyn Kelly, for example, um, and as well we should. And the section on cherishing women. Uh, and the section on oh. humility and truthiness. And, Very short section. Yeah. yeah. Um, I'm getting nauseous. It's a non-section. And here is, uh, the, I think, the, sell the sections that all rational security listeners will want to jump to. Page 102, the Muslims. <laughs> Page 121, 9-11 fallen heroes and other matters. Uh, section 130. Wait, you're not reading any quotes. I will. The Art of War. 
Ah. Section ah. on page 152. Chairman Trump. Bomb the, the shit out of them. <laughs> so, the question, so the question is, which, do you, which one do you want a ceremonial reading from? Um, I think bomb the shit out of them. Definitely I already know how he feels about them. the Muslims. Yeah. 152. Here we go to page 152. Now a reading from the little um, red book. I would say I'm the most militaristic person on the stage. Yes. Yes. Um, uh, responding to a Sean Hannity question, when you talk about the nuclear button, the ones I'm worried about are the other people on the other side that have the nuclear, but don't worry about me. I, too, am worried about those people. <clears throat> I'm, I'm worried about all of those people. I'm worried about all of these people. <laughs> I would bomb the shit out of them, describing his strategy for fighting Islam Islamic terrorists. Um, and you only bomb the stuffing out of them so far. No, yeah, here, here's, that's, that's here, lame. You can't just bomb stuffing. Here's the other, uh, here, here's the one again that, that just gets me every time. From a speech in Fort Dodge, Iowa, I know more about ISIS than the generals do. Preach, <laughs> brother. Um, and responding to a question yes. about Syria on the Middle East, again from Sean Hannity, Chairman Trump said, you bomb the hell out of the oil. Don't worry about the cities. The cities are terrible. Um, oh, oh, wow. I never heard that one. Yeah, so I, I, I like that one, particularly because he clearly doesn't know that Damascus is, I believe, the oldest continuously inhabited city in the world, and Aleppo is one of the sort of jewels of... of was. Of, was. One it, of the it, jewels. Um, terrible places. There are no good hotels. Yeah. There are no anyway, the, the, uh, the, the bomb the shit out of them section goes on for another few pages. Wow. But buy your copy of quotations from Chairman Trump, and uh, and who and, do we have to thank for this? Uh, Cody Poplin. Who, no, 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 the publisher. Uh, it is brought to you by. Please tell me he put it out himself. Rowetta <laughs> Books or Ro something. <laughs> Row opportunistic oh, books. Sorry, Rosetta. A Rosetta books. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah. Wow. Um, well, I'll go next because while uh, you may not be having um, sponsored Putin memorabilia this week, I am. Uh, oh my God! I'm I knew we couldn't go a week. So glad it. this is catching on. <laughs> We're brought to you this week by eBay. eBay, where you can find, among other delights, this Putin and Obama figurine exclusive. Get is out! How it is billed. It is a. Um, I'm just going to put it out there. Um, more than vaguely offensive, but... Um, <laughs> is it graphic? Uh, sort of. This is Putin, a figurine of Putin bending the president over and spanking him. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> Excellent. Wow. It's, uh, yeah. And, and the president is wearing Converse All-Stars. Yeah, and like some like little like polo and some red shorts. I, mean, I think it's meant to make him look like a child. Um, it's a little bit, uh, yeah, it's it's... It's, it's odd and it's provocative. Odd and provocative, um, and it can and be yours. And it make an excellent decoration for your fireplace mantle. Right. It can be yours for ninety nine dollars plus twenty three dollars for shipping. <laughs> shipping. Wow, a hundred dollars this thing. Who this is made it's by? Because it's limited edition, I'm sure it's very Vic, exclusive. Victor Sark is the it's uh, item location. Not surprisingly, Moscow uh. Russian Federation. So yeah, um, the seller is sorry, Sark Victo or Victo Sark. I'm not really sure who Victo is, but apparently he has a lot of time on his hands, and I think he is the same guy behind maybe other such popular items as um, Vladimir Putin riding a bear. 
Excellent. Yeah. Um, I I'm, think that this is. That's all Russian treasures. That's all Russian treasures. That's somebody different. So, do you think that somewhere in Moscow there is a shop that's like the Putin glorification shop where you can buy all of these figurines and have the full collection? Sure. I mean, there must be many of them, right? Yeah. That's the place that we need to like sponsor Russia. The, the Hummel yeah. of modern Russia. Or they like give them away at their version of McDonald's, like in Happy Meals. Oh, yeah. There you go. Maybe there's like one every year, the way there's a White House Christmas ornament. <laughs> I'm very sad that Vladimir Putin is not shirtless in this picture with him spanking it, but I think that would be sending maybe the, the wrong, wrong signal. message. <laughs> you find yourself locked up in the gulag if you try and put that out there. But I'm just saying, it's um, yeah, it's uh, it's pretty out there. That right. is out there. Yeah. Wow. All right. Tomorrow, what is your object? Well, my object is not anywhere out there. It's not even amusing because I am snow over this snow. You know. I grew up in the Midwest. I grew up in Michigan. It snowed a lot. School didn't close very much, but it snowed a lot. And I'm walked used uphill both ways. To uh, both ways, every day. And you know, so I'm used to walking around in the snow. But here I am, living in the Mid Atlantic in a southern city. And uh, and I thought that I could get away without some of the accoutrement that one has when one lives in the snowy Midwest. When I grew up, everybody walked around wearing these really hideously ugly boots um, that were rubber on the bottom and kind of furry and quilted on the top because you were walking through the slushy, nasty stuff everywhere you go. And I was very happy to move to a mid-Atlantic southern city where I wouldn't have to wear such things. But now I'm really wishing I had a pair because just look at my boots, man. The salt stains, Yeah. it's so nasty, and you're it's really to, sad. To, I got I got big snow boots for the first time ever this year. Every so, year I so ruin a I did, really too. nice pair of boots so, with so the wait, salt so in wait this a minute. town. Your object lesson is stained boots? <laughs> yes. <laughs> I'm bummed. You know, I like these black leather boots. They're awesome riding boots. That's and now, just... Unacceptable. <laughs> but can I offer? I'm gonna, hey, I want to offer. Going to California for the weekend is unacceptable. I want to offer buddy. a security <laughs> connection to this, though. I, I'm, I'm going to save your object. Um, I really, I have to say, I'm not one of these snow complainers who's like, why can't DC get it together with the plowing and the? I thought they did get it together. They did. They get it got together a little late, but I just have to say, it's it is a little bit unsettling to me that in you know the capital of the free world, Washington DC seat of power in our government, we do just kind of shut down for three days. Like, why, I mean, why, can't, like, the National Guard or, like, some sort of resource be called in? It's a in? blizzard. I know. Blizzards like, happen. I feel like they happen all the time. We no, just don't quite once learn Once every lesson. few years, we get a blizzard. When it's a blizzard, you go in your house, you build a nice fire, you hang out with the dog, drink some scotch. A couple days later, everything gets back to normal. See, you're hitting Big on the deal. right thing. We don't want to dig out of this. No, we we could marshal the resources we to just plow want to this cozy place up. in 12 hours. Nobody wants to do it. I just it's leave it. town. I, I, I left town for Snowmageddon. Yep. I left town and for don't snow. Don't think I've forgotten. <laughs> no, I was with you at a conference once when a snowstorm came. Yeah. You do this all the time. Yeah, I I, I plan it's part of my schedule. You I'm, were in Texas. I know when the snow is coming, and There's I always no have a conference. There's no justice in the world. This guy. Yeah, I'm telling you, Shane. Two days it took me to dig out the car. All right, next year. I'm following you. I'm, I'm going Come to Come January, well, I'm going with you wherever you're going. <laughs> wherever you're going. 
All right, well, that brings us to the end of the show. Rational Security is a production of Spaghetti on the Wall Productions. You can find links to our show archive at SpaghettiOnTheWallProductions.com. You can tweet at us at RATL Security. Thanks very much for your tweets. It's great to see them. Uh, and when you do download the podcast, make sure you leave us a nice rating and comments. Uh, it's really great, and we appreciate it. The show is edited by Jen Howell. Our music is performed this week by Ben and his surveillance shit shovelers. <laughs> Nice one. No, it's actually performed by Nosratola Kusravi <laughs> and Sophia Yan. The two of them got together. It was a duet. Nosratola Kusravi yeah. and the Revolutionary Guard. <laughs> the Revolutionary no, and the Guard. FBI agents. No, totally. He's like, no, I have a band. I have a band. <laughs> there are FBI agents in it. We could play for you. It'd yeah. be great. And, and, we're, 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 and, and You guys, this is so sad. <laughs> probably doesn't even exist. It's probably all just some kind of a fiction. You it's think he doesn't plot. exist? I'm beginning it's to It's like wonder. a practical joke. I think somebody played a joke on me this week. I just don't know. I'll believe it when I meet him face to face. All right. Not in Iran. Just saying. Not in it's Iran. have to be here. On behalf of my good friends Benjamin Wittes and Tamara Kaufman Wittes, I'm Shane Harris. We'll talk to you next week. Thanks for listening. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.